0: Listening to the VC20 podcast, a space for meaningful conversations and relevant teachings. Let's turn our attention to the word. Nehemiah chapter two is where we will be. Nehemiah chapter two, if you have your Bibles, go with me there. Last week we looked at Nehemiah chapter one. Bet you didn't see that coming. Um, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 1 and considered what does it mean to have the heart of a restorer? If you were unable to join us last week, you can always check out all of our sermons on YouTube, youtube.com slash vc20, or you can uh, check out our podcast, the vc20 podcast, wherever you get your podcast, just search the vc20 podcast and, and there it is. But last week we considered Nehemiah 1. What does it mean to have the heart of a restorer? Remember, Nehemiah vocationally was the cupbearer to the king. It was the cupbearer's job to taste any wine before it ever touched the king's lips to ensure that the wine wasn't poisoned. He was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And it's in the king's presence that we actually find him in our text tonight here in Nehemiah chapter 2. But while Nehemiah was in Persia, remember his brother comes to him and brings him word of the condition of Jerusalem. We said Jerusalem was significant because it was the place where God had chosen his name to dwell. Nehemiah's brother brings him word of the condition of Jerusalem. He says the walls are are fallen down and the gates are burned with fire and Nehemiah is immediately on a guttural level stricken with grief and he prays and fasts and weeps for four months. And remember we said that Nehemiah has the heart of a restorer because he sees the world as it is, right? He doesn't just bury his head in the sand. He doesn't survey the condition of Jerusalem and say, man, that sounds pretty bad. Somebody should do something about that, right? No, he says, I must do something about that. This burden becomes a vision born in the place of prayer. We said the first thing that Nehemiah does was he directs his attention toward God, and he prays four months. Not only does Nehemiah see the world as it is, though, praise God that he doesn't stop there, he contends for the world as it should be. This is this is the heart of an intercessor. An intercessor sees the world as it is, but they pray and believe God for the world as it should be. They usher in the kingdom and power of God to break into our world through prayer. And it occurred to me that while I was writing that that brief two-minute synopsis of last week's sermon that some of y'all might be asking yourself, why didn't he just say it that way last week? He could have saved us like 30 minutes. And to you, I would say that is a very good question. I'm going to try to be as expeditious as I can tonight. So, if you're at Nehemiah chapter 2, give me a good amen. Amen. We're going to have the words on the screens. Let's stand together as we read. The Word of God says this In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can this can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor, I want you to circle that word, underline, highlight it, if a, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting by him asked, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates, So that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters, the king had also sent an army of officers in cavalry with me. We're halfway there. Verse ten. When Sanbalat and Horonite and Tiba- Sambala the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite, aka Tweedledee and Tweedledum, when they heard about this, they were very much disturbed that some that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down in its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because I had not yet said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, "'You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild.'" let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let's get to it. Let's start rebuilding. So they began the good work. I want to talk to you for the next 20 minutes or so from this idea, faith over fear, faith over fear. Let's go to God, seek his face in his presence. Father, would you pour out your spirit? Would you speak to your people? Would you stir us and call us to action, help us to dream big, to plan accordingly, to levy and leverage all that we have and all that we are for your glory and for the God-given purpose that you have placed on every person's life in this room. Lord, we love you. We pray expectantly. Would you bless the rest of our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You can go ahead and get comfy. So when we pick it up in verse 1, like I said, Nehemiah is fulfilling his duties as the cupbearer to the king. He's checking the wine before the king drinks it to make sure that the king doesn't drop dead. But the king notices that Nehemiah's countenance has fallen. The king inquires and he says, what's going on, Nehemiah? You, you, You look a little sad today. Verse 2 says that in light of the king's inquiry, catch this, that Nehemiah was stricken with fear, which seems a little weird until you realize that he's fearful because it would have been the king's prerogative to kill him on the spot. You best not be a buzzkill in the presence of the king. He could have killed him or, or perhaps even jailed him. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine what it, what it would have been like to yield or be subjected to that kind of tyrannical power? Nehemiah, it's literally uh, in this instance, in this moment, uh, a life and death situation. Nehemiah could have literally been killed, but not only that, Nehemiah is afraid because he knows what he's getting ready to ask the king for is utterly ridiculous. I don't know if you guys saw it, but he wants the king to let him return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city. And listen to the audacity of my man, Nehemiah. He says, King, I want you to let me go home and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But I also want you to give me letters so that on my journey, Nobody derails me and stops me and tells me that I can't go forward. But not only that, I want you to give me a note so that I can get the lumber and wood and and equipment necessary to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah is essentially saying, King, I want to rebuild the walls and I want to do it with your authority and your money. I I need an army. I need a garrison to protect me and my people while we're building this wall. Nehemiah says, I want to build the wall and you're going to bankroll this thing. Not only is that request in and of itself pretty crazy, it's utterly insane when you consider it in light of the fact that this wasn't the first time that the wall was attempted to be rebuilt. In the book of Ezra, Ezra actually marshals the people at one point and attempts to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But the king, this same king, Artaxerxes, suppresses those plans by force because he's been told that a healthy and stable Jerusalem is a threat to his kingdom. So Nehemiah says, King Artaxerxes, or whatever his name is, y'all, I need you to let me rebuild this wall. The same wall that you prevented Ezra from rebuilding just a number of years ago. And here's the point, here's the principle. Whenever you're walking in the will of God, Whenever you labor for the kingdom's cause, whenever you take a risk and step out in faith, fear will always be there. Nehemiah was afraid. Fear will always be there. Fear will always be there to tell you that you can't do it. Fear will always be there to tell you that your plans are destined to fail. Fear will always be there to try to convince you that you couldn't, that you shouldn't, so you might as well not even try. Let me give you an example. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with someone? You ever tried to extend an Alpha invitation to someone? There's always that initial pause where you start to second guess yourself and wonder if you should. What if they reject this? What if they judge me because I'm a Christian? Some of you have wanted to invite somebody to Alpha, but fear has constrained you. What if what if they say no? What if what if this creates some sort of relational schism and and, you know, nobody wants to be rejected, right? I know we got some shot shooters in here who have no problems being rejected because you've been asking out every girl and every guy since, you know, you've been in high school. But that's cool. If that's your personality, praise God. But, but when it comes to something like sharing our faith, we, aren't always, we don't always have the disposition to readily share the gospel or engage in spiritual conversation because fear, whenever you are about the cause of Christ, fear will always be there. But I want you to notice what Nehemiah does in the face of fear. I'm going to give you three things that I'm going to get out of your way. He chooses faith. Not some mystical, magical, ethereal sort of faith. He is deliberate in his faith. The first thing Nehemiah does is he chooses faith in the face of fear by praying. Nehemiah chooses faith in the face of fear by praying. Verse four, it says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is so important. I don't want you to miss this. Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven. Some commentators think, that Nehemiah refers to God as the God of heaven because this was commonly how the Persians would refer to the Jewish God. But I believe this is actually saying more about Nehemiah's belief in the power and sovereign care of God. Locating God in heaven means that he stands over and above the problems and concerns of this world. And there is nothing beyond his control. You see, whenever fear rises up, you must, it must be met with faith, but not faith in yourself, not faith in your resume, not faith in your skills or your abilities, but faith in God and faith in who God is. He is the God of heaven. Nehemiah, we, we saw last, last week, declares that he is the great and awesome God. He's a promise-keeping God who always keeps his covenant of love. Here's, here's a practical application to this point, and I challenge you, to take this call seriously. We would do well to simply name God in any situation that causes us stress or anxiety, not as some magical incantation to try to manipulate God, but instead to remind yourself of the nature and character of the God who is present with you in the midst of your anxiety, in the midst of that stressful situation. And also to remind you that if all else fails, we still have Him, and in Him, we have everything we need. Y'all are quiet tonight. Am I talking to anybody? Here are some examples. You're struggling to have peace? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, that says that Jesus Christ is our peace. Are you struggling with a sin struggle? Try as you might, you just can't find victory. 2 Peter chapter 1 says that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Are you struggling with spiritual attack? Psalm 46 says that God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present ever help in times of trouble. I want you, I challenge you, to get a reservoir of Scripture. Here's, here's the practice, actually. During your prayer times or your quiet times this week, I just want you to consider the many things that Scripture claims God to be, and I want you to pronounce who God is in the midst of stress, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of worry, in the midst of pain, in the midst of hardship. Just speak the name of God into every single situation. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans 8. He says, what sh- what then shall we say To these things, these things being very difficult things, being famine, distress, danger, the sword. Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? If God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? One of my favorite preachers by the name of J.R. Vassar he preached a a sermon series through the book of Nehemiah. I don't encourage you to listen to it because then you will realize how much of this man's stuff I'm actually stealing. But he says it this way. He says, you can live in two realities. You can live in what if, or you can live in if God. What if is full of doubt. It's for Of worry, it's full of fear of the unknown. If God is full of assurance that God will come through for you, that God favors you, that His hand is on your life, that that He longs to bless you, that He is your protector, your provider, your source, your sustainer, everything. You can live in what if, or you can live in if God. But not only does Nehemiah pray, here's the second thing he's also patient. I mentioned this earlier. Actually, I can't remember if I mentioned this earlier, but I certainly mentioned it last week. Upon hearing the news of Jerusalem's condition, Nehemiah proceeds to pray for four, maybe as many as five months. And in these four or five months, my man is weeping and interceding and praying and pleading for God's mercy to be enacted in Jerusalem. He doesn't immediately jump to action, which is our instinct most of the time. Listen, to, he doesn't immediately jump to action. Instead, he spends that time waiting on the Lord. What do we mean when we say that? Anybody ever heard a preacher? Anybody ever been in church long enough where you've heard that phrase thrown around? You're like, like, can we be real? You ever thought like, what in the world does that mean? Wait on the Lord. Here's the reason why we... We wrestle with that question in reality. It's because we don't wait well, do we? We're conditioned to want everything on demand. And when we don't get it quickly, we're tempted to give up on the matter altogether. And that's fine when you're talking about fast food and Wi-Fi. But when God calls you to something, listen to me, VC 20, when God calls you to something and whether you realize it or not, there is a call of God on your life. I'm talking to you, not just the person next to you. I'm talking to you. There is a call of God on your life. And when God calls you to something, it's almost always going to require you to wait. It requires patience. I know for many of you, God has given you a burden. Perhaps the seeds of a burden were planted in your heart last week. Some of you have a burden or a passion to eradicate poverty. Some of you want to see more teens in our city go to college than go to jail. Some of you want to labor for, inequ- for equity and justice for the marginalized and the oppressed. But before you put your hand to the plow, God is almost certainly going to call you to wait. Here's why. Hopefully these three realities will bring purpose to your waiting. There's a lot more to say, but let me just give you these three things very quickly. Number one, God calls you to wait. And this is something you've heard us say often here at vc 20. God calls you to wait because he's more interested in who you're becoming, even more so than what you're doing. God is more interested in who you're becoming, even more so than what you're doing. And in your waiting, God is growing you. He's growing maturity in you. He's refining you. He's growing you up. He's preparing you to be the person to carry out and complete the call that is on your life. God calls you to wait because our instinct is to hurry and get to work, but God says, no, 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 hold up, Lennox, I need to work on you. God says, hold up, Paul, I need to to call you to maturity. I need to call you to a faith-filled life. I I need to call you to purity. I need to call you to a life of consecration before I can release you into this mission and into this purpose. Sometimes in our waiting, we actually miss the bigger picture. We say, God, we got to hurry up as if things are beyond the control of God. God, we got to hurry. And God is saying, settle down, son. Settle down, daughter, because I have a work to do in your heart. Here's the second thing. In your waiting, God is purifying your motives. If this one isn't for y'all, this one is for me. Is what you're doing for God's glory or for your own acclaim? Are you willing to stick to the mission and call that God has on your life, even in the face of opposition or when you don't get to see the fruit of your labor? Let me ask it this way, VC 20. Are you willing to labor for the harvest, even if it's for someone else to pick? God is purifying your motives in your waiting. Here's the last thing. Your waiting will bring you clarity. You might have a general target, but in your waiting, God wants to to clarify and crystallize the bullseye. You may have a plan or strategy, but God may in fact have a better plan in mind. Waiting will give you time to discern the difference between your will and God's will. And His will, I can guarantee you, is always better. Do not waste your waiting, because God has good for you there. There's one commentator by the name of Warren Wearsby in his commentary on the Book of Nehemiah. When he's uh, uh, commenting on this passage, he says this: Three statements in Scripture have a calming effect on me whenever I get nervous and want to rush ahead of the Lord. Anybody ever feel that the tendency or temptation to get out ahead of God? God, I'm ready to go overseas now. God still has you here. God, I'm ready to start this NGO now, but you're a sophomore in college. God, I'm ready to go plant a church now, but God hasn't opened opened a door for you yet. We are always so tempted to get out ahead of the Lord when we should instead be laboring to stay in step with the Lord. Three scriptures have a calming effect on me whenever I get nervous and want to rush ahead of the Lord. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. Sit still until you know how the matter will turn out. Ruth chapter 3, verse 18. And here's one that most of us are familiar with Be still and know that I am God. Be still. That is so counterintuitive to our nature. My brother Josh right here, Josh, I hope this is okay that I share this, but he had a really prophetic word. He, he was called overseas, and praise God, he's going. Amen? We are excited to send you, Josh. We're believing in you. Yeah, if you're going to clap, VC20, do it better than that. But in his angst and anxiety, he was trying to do everything himself. And he said he had this picture. And Josh, correct me if I'm if I'm getting this wrong. That he was, he was in the waiting room, and he was pacing in the waiting room. You get the imagery, right? Anybody ever been in a waiting room, maybe waiting a, uh, the arrival of a baby or, or a favorable diagnosis for a loved one? You're you're pacing in the waiting room, and the Lord just said, "Chill, my brother. Just chill. Be still." And know that I'm God. Know that my timing is perfect. My grace is sufficient. And I have a plan for your life. Be still. When you wait, man, I haven't even gotten through the whole quote. When you wait on the Lord in prayer, you are not wasting your time. You are investing it. How good is that? You are not wasting your time. You're investing it. God is preparing both you and your circumstances so that it is, so that his purposes will be accomplished. However, when the right time arrives for us to act by faith, we dare not delay. Nehemiah was prayerful. Nehemiah was patient. Let me give you this last one very quickly. Nehemiah was prepared. Look at verse five again with me. When the king asks what Nehemiah needs, he knows exactly. he has he has a precise inventory of everything that is necessary to accomplish the mission of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He responds by saying, I need letters. I need you to foot the bill for the lumber I'm gonna need. I need an army escort for protection. And this is exactly how long I will be gone. I promise you Nehemiah didn't come up with that stuff off the top of his head. He's been churning this over with God in prayer over these past four to five months. Here's the simple truth. A lot of us have dreams and goals but very few of us have plans. We all have dreams. Very few of us have plans, which is why we're so bound up by fear. Some of you have a goal to get your finances together, and that's a good God honoring goal, but do you have a plan? Listen to me. Just because you have a plan doesn't mean your journey from here to there is going to be linear. Proverbs 16 says that, A man orders his steps, but it's God that ultimately determines the destination. There might be some detours and left turns, but here's what a plan will permit you to do. A plan will give you just enough clarity and hopefully just enough motivation to at the very least take the first step. Take the first step. And then as one famous theologian, a guy by the name of Rich Nathan says, Journeying with Jesus goes like this. Left foot, right foot. It's one step after the other. Here's my challenge to you. I want you to get a plan together to bring the God dream in your heart to come to pass. Whatever that thing is. I don't care how big or how small that goal is. Like I said, some of you want to get your finances together. Some of you want to get healthy. You want to start eating healthy and living healthy. Some of you are on the cusp of graduation, and you want to use your degree with purpose and on purpose for God's glory. So that may mean going into ministry or the nonprofit sector or tackling the the innumerable injustices in our world. I don't care how big they are. Get a plan together. Pray through it and wrestle through it with the Lord, and then take the first step. Here's the last thing I want to leave you with. Look at verse 5 again. It says, if if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight. Uh, Be warned, this is a bit of a sharp left turn here. This last last point isn't really connected to the whole faith over fear shtick, that whole outline I just gave you. I just want to do some work here to hopefully dispel a myth that's been floating around the church for what feels like forever. I don't know what kind of church y'all grew up in. Some of you might be new to church and you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what this guy is talking about. Just stay with me. We're going to worship here in just a few moments. I don't know what kind of church you grew up in, grew up in. But in the church that I grew up in, if you were to ask somebody, Wes, I know you know this. If you were to ask somebody how they're doing, the church mothers will respond, well, baby, I am blessed. I am blessed and what? Highly favored. I am blessed and highly favored. Now, somewhere along the way, the idea of being favored by God has become synonymous with being in good health or driving a nice car or having achieved some measure or some manner of success or financial stability. Now, listen to me. None of those things are bad things. Lord knows I need a little bit more money. I will gladly take a new car. If you have a check for me, make it out to Shane Huey Ministries International. I will take your money. I'm not saying that there is anything inherently wrong with those things. But favor, if you're taking notes, write this down. Favor isn't primarily about receiving God's blessing. Favor is primarily about being graced for God's mission. Favor isn't primarily about receiving God's blessing. Favor is primarily about being graced for God's mission. Nehemiah receives favor from God by way of the king because God is going to use him to, to help rebuild a city and not just rebuild a city. Nehemiah's mission is so much bigger than just rebuilding some walls. Nehemiah is being used by God to reclaim a people for his name. So God gives him the grace to accomplish this mission. He gives him the provision to get the job done, even though, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, I hope y'all come back to church next week, and I hope you be a bringer. We got a ton of seats here. We can fit like I don't know, a gazillion more people in here. Still be social distance. It's all good. Bring somebody with you next week. In the coming weeks, we're going to see that there is hardship that awaits Nehemiah. There is difficulty. There is pain. There is setback. There is some haters that awaits Nehemiah. There's hardship for storing him. But being favored by God means God is giving Nehemiah the grace and the provision to accomplish his mission. In Luke chapter one, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, the mother of Jesus and he calls her highly favored one. Favored for what? Have you ever thought about this? Favored for what? The woman was nearly divorced. You can be assured that she was doubted her entire life. Nobody was gonna believe this virgin birth thing. Us Christians barely believe that stuff if we were honest with one another. She was almost divorced. She was doubted all her life, not to mention she had to watch her son be brutally murdered. Favored for what? Favor for you might not mean nice things, good times, and smooth sailing. Instead, favor might mean self-denial, sacrificial love, and suffering for the sake of the gospel. But do not doubt for one second that God's favor is not on your life. Whenever you take the risk, step out in faith and labor for his kingdom's cause. Scripture is littered with examples of seemingly insignificant people being used by God to do great things because when he puts your favor, his favor on your life, Remember, we said it like we outlined the equation like this last week. You by yourself may not be able to accomplish much, but you plus God, baby, anything is possible. You should feel daunted when you survey and consider whatever it is that God has put a burden in your heart for. Eradicating poverty, me, God, I'm just one person. That's exactly how God wants you to, fi- to feel because it's in your weakness, it's in your brokenness, it's in your inadequacy. When He blesses you with His favor, you must have faith that He has given you grace and provision to accomplish the call of God that He's placed on your life. Favor might not be measured in cars, bank accounts, clothes, favor instead must be measured by whether or not are you walking in the will of god are you living and laboring for his glory listen to me all i'm not preaching a poverty gospel i'm not saying there's anything inherently more noble about being broke but neither am I preaching a, a prosperity gospel. I don't think that just because you got some money and a nice car means that God's blessing and favor is on your life. Instead, I'm preaching a purpose gospel. Are you walking in God's purpose for your life? That's how you know whether or not you are blessed and highly favored. Let's stand together. We're just going to flow and go to, go together here a little bit Wesley. Come Holy Spirit Why don't you pray that prayer right now? Just make that your breath prayer. Just pray, come Holy Spirit. Father, so many of us are afraid of walking in your purposes for our lives. Many of us are afraid because God, a yes to you necessarily means a no to the world. And if we were real and honest tonight, the world is appealing. Sin is a whole lot of fun. If it weren't, we would be doing a lot less of it. Some of us are afraid of walking in your purpose because your purpose is so much bigger than ourselves. Give us faith, Father, to believe that you go before us and behind us, that when your favor is on our lives, Lord, and your sovereign care, your purposes will come to pass. God, it is our joy to be used by you, to partner with you. We choose faith in the face of fear tonight. Make us a praying people who seeks you and speaks your name in every anxious situation. Make us a people of great faith, of abundant faith, Father. Make us a patient people. God, redeem our waiting by reminding us, as the song says, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, even when we're unaware of it, you're working. And we believe that there is a deeper work that you're doing into our our hearts because you love us enough to grow us up before you send us out. Father, make us a prepared people. God, I pray for the folks who are going to take me up on that challenge to get a plan together. I pray that as they're planning, their hearts would be flooded full of faith, that they would dream big for your kingdom's cause. Lord, we love you so, so much. God, I feel that there's a particular call on this community to pray and believe you for revival in our city. That's still the thing we're running after. Give us the faith for it. God. Give us the plans for it, Lord. God, you're so good. Do it in the mighty and the matchless name of Jesus. And do it all for His glory, not ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the BC20 Podcast. Make sure to subscribe for more sermons and intentional conversations. You can also check us out online at bc20.com.